One of the best gifts our family ever got was a laser tag set. Um, Grandma bought enough laser tag guns so that each Broderick and a few friends could have fun destroying each other with laser tag, and we we have had so very much fun with these. We play all over our neighborhood. Uh, whoever happens to be at the house gets pressed into playing laser tag. We played on the golf course behind my parents' house, play with the cousins. We have even pressed elders into service when we've been playing laser tag, and elders have come over to our house, and we've made them get out and play laser tag with us. Yeah, you like that? That's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> but this is what really made the game awesome. It was when we added these, the night vision goggles. See, they're lit up with the power from this. It was incredible how well we could see each other with the night vision goggles on. That golf course behind my parents' house, we would play all over that golf course, and you could see everything so, so clearly. In fact, some things, some things were more clear when we had the, the goggles on, clearer even than those things were in daylight. There were nuances that one could make out best with those goggles. Now, I bring that up because what we're learning about Nehemiah today is his vision. Nehemiah sees clearly when everybody else is just groping around in the dark. It is is like the man has night vision goggles on. He sees everything so clearly. And guess what? Studying Nehemiah does the same thing for each of us. You see, learning about his great vision is going to help us see better. Let let me show you. Uh, It starts when Nehemiah plans ahead. Open your Bible, if you would. Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is right after Ezra in your Old Testament, just before Esther. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2, and let's read verses 7 and 8. Nehemiah 2, 7 and 8. I also said to the king, this is Nehemiah in the presence of Artaxerxes, the Medo-Persian emperor, the emperor of the known world. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, Let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River, so they'll grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my request, for I was graciously strengthened by my God. As we say in our notes, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. You'll see in your notes there, Nehemiah plans ahead, and he is bold. Bold. The context is this critical moment when Nehemiah asked the Persian emperor Artaxerxes for permission to leave his post as cupbearer to the king, an incredibly high-ranking official in a very, very strategic position. He asks to leave because he wants to go back. He wants to go to a place he's never been, his people's homeland of Jerusalem back in Judah. He wants to go there to oversee the, the rebuilding work there, which has stymied. This is a Nehemiah is a person who gets things done, and he wants to go back and use his powers for good. How about you? Would you you like to be somebody who gets things done? Let Let me put it this way. Would you like to use your powers for good? If so, say yes. All right, then notice Nehemiah's preparation, because you're not going to get anything done unless you learn to prepare. The king of the known world has just asked him what he wants to do. And look at Nehemiah. He has obviously thought this through so well that he has a list of necessities. He's right on the tip of his tongue. He's able to say, this is what I need. And by the way, his list shows someone thinking on a very large scale. Make no mistake, these are big, bold requests. Timber has always been the rarest resource in the Middle East. Nehemiah, he intends to build with stone and brick. Everybody in Israel builds with stone and brick. But, but he needs wood for gates, for scaffolding, for, for studs, for support. Uh, when people visit uh, old structures, when you go see old structures that are made out of, out of stone and brick, 
people always notice this. One always comments on this. What were these holes for? Why did they build with holes? Can, can you see them? Can you see the holes in the structure here? People always wonder, why would they have built their building with all those holes in it? The answer has to do with timber. You see, when you see those holes in an ancient building, it's for one of two purposes. It's either for support or, or scaffolding. If you, if you see big holes in the sides of, like in old castles, you'll see this, big holes, that's where the beam went across that they built the floor on top of. So that's why that hole's there. When you see ones like this that are in the side of a wall, that's because it was for the scaffolding that was used so they could climb higher and do it. So what I just showed you, that slide, that was part of the Baths of Diocletian in Rome. Some of you have been there. This is what it looked like. It was covered with plaster and paint. Nobody saw those holes. They just had the holes there so they could get higher to build the wall. If you ever go to Petra in Jordan, you will see these kinds of holes in the sides of the beautiful carved buildings the Nabataeans made. Why are those there? Because they had to build scaffolding higher and higher to allow the carvers to get higher and higher in the sandstone. Now, you're going to see that and wonder, well, why? Why make holes and just keep moving your scaffolding up? Because that's what they were doing. They were moving it up each point along. Why not just do what Mike would do in his construction and just build a taller scaffold? Because they didn't have any wood. Wood is so expensive. You couldn't afford to build. That scaffold would cost more than this whole building cost to carve. Wood was so rare that you would just move it up. And yet look what Nehemiah does. He boldly asks for wood. He asks for the emperor's staff to open the timber treasury. By the way, it's managed by somebody named Asaph, which is a Jewish name. So it's a Hebrew who manages this. In fact, the specific word of what he manages makes this request even nervier. Look, uh, pardes is a word uh, used rarely in the Bible. It's only used two other times in the Bible, both times by Solomon, the, the wealthiest man in the world. Pardes means a park or a preserve of wood as opposed to a wild forest. And pardes implies that this is a private preserve and it is meant for one person. Nehemiah is asking for special trees that are in a particular park that is set aside by the king for his royal use alone. Bold. He also asked for what we would call royal warrants. Uh, these are letters that allow him to speak as the king in regions west of Persia proper. This is also really gutsy. And I have to confess that this is where this passage convicts me. I am not especially good at this. Sometimes I am reticent to grab the opportunity and boldly ask for what I know is needed for the, for the work that God has put before me. I, I'm, I'm too concerned sometimes with being rude or demanding, so I will mousily just swallow my request and I don't ask for what I know is needed. Nehemiah isn't like me. He's not rude. He's not entitled here. He merely answers honestly. I need to do the same. Maybe you do as well. In my case, here's how it works. I see the situation. I plan ahead. I know what is needed, but I can't pull the trigger to make that bold request. It's like playing laser tag, and through the night vision goggles, I can clearly see the other player, but, but I'm, my laser's not working. I can't pull the trigger to make the shot. Now, I am getting a little bit better at this. During a recent campaign at our church, I, I was clearer. I was bolder in that campaign. One thing that helped me a lot was a thought that one of my mentors shared with me. A few years ago, Dr. Wimp told me this. It really struck me. He said, Wayne, if you're not bold and clear in relating the vision, you're sinning. To swallow the truth is a lie, and lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Close quote. He's right. 
Now, oftentimes, the situations that require the best planning and the most boldness are ones that have, they're, they're problems that have existed for a long time. That's the case with Nehemiah, right? Remember, these problems back in Judah have existed for over a hundred years now. But those are exactly the kinds of situations where boldness is most needed, where there is an entrenched problem that everybody thinks is going to last forever. That's where you need to prepare and be bold. 500 years ago, the Roman church had been in theological purgatory. I mean that both figuratively and literally. Theological purgatory for centuries. And yet Martin Luther was bold in his stance for truth. Here I stand, I can do no other. 70 years ago, institutional racism in America seemed set in permanent stone. And yet Martin Luther King Jr. was bold in his stance for righteousness. A little over 30 years ago, it seemed that the evils of atheistic communism could never be overcome, and yet President Reagan boldly demanded, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, right? So with all that in mind, what seemingly insurmountable problem is God going to motivate you to attack? What is he putting on your heart? Is it kids who just refuse to obey is it a sin problem that you're whipped by every day? Is it some serious social issue, some political problem? What do you need to fight? Whatever it is, be sure to think it through and plan what you need. Plan like Nehemiah and then be bold when you're given the opportunity to procure it. All God's people said, amen. Be bold. Now, when I say plan it out, that doesn't mean analysis paralysis, right? Make your move. Take your hand off the chess piece. Quit standing there paralyzed. You know what I mean? By the way, whenever you are paralyzed by analysis, it's always because you're trying to keep control. That's really what's behind that. It's a, it's a, a thinly veiled attempt, a fake attempt at control. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He recognizes God's hand, both in the strength to make his request and in the gracious gifts he receives. Look, look at the New King James rendering. I really like this. It says, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. That seems to capture nicely the, the point the Hebrews text is bringing out, that it is only because of God's strength that Nehemiah's planning works. He sees God is the one strengthening him. God is the mover. He's the one opening all the doors. In the New Testament, uh, Peter's like this after Jesus' resurrection and commissioning of him. In Acts, we hear statements like this one. Um, Peter has just been miraculously freed from prison, and he says this. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people expected. Close quote. He knows for certain God is at work. He sees God's hand in the, in the hard and the delightful, the good, the bad, and ugly of his existence. The humility in each of these cases is fantastic. Look at this. It's not my power that protects me. It's not my fear-based, hypersensitive helicopter parenting that saves my family. It's God. He uses his tools to do his will. Now, God's tools certainly include wisdom on my part. But if I want to have great vision, I need to recognize the sovereign hand of God. Folks, this is the most important factor missing from most visioneering, and I'm talking about in churches. In churches. Even when Christians lay out a bold vision, have you, have you noticed this? This is how we tend to do it. We tend to do it with disgusting anthropocentrism, and a ridiculous cause and effect, linear cause and effect idea. Because I did this, this happened. It's all about me. I'm the prime mover. Instead of what Nehemiah wrote, you know what we would say? Because of my amazing planning, everything came together. 
right? In Peter's shoes, we would say, because I prayed the right formula, or I prayed with the right fervency, or because I'm specially gifted, that's why I was freed from prison. It's sick. Boldness without recognition of God's hand is, is merely atheism, or it's, or it's paganism with a little Jesus sprinkled on top. Plan thoroughly, think, be bold, and, and, and recognize God's sovereign hand in whatever comes to pass. All God's people said, amen. That's Nehemiah's first key to great vision. Now, right side of our notes, we cover the second visionary passage in our book. It's a little further down in chapter 2 where Nehemiah encourages others with the biblical vision. Go to chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, He's talking to the people in Jerusalem. He's back in Judah. He's talking to the people, and he says this. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned down. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And they were encouraged to do this good work. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? You rebelling against the king? That's how they said it, too. Um, I gave them this reply. The God of heaven is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building. But you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah frames the problem clearly. This is very important. Notice he doesn't lie. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He identifies with the people. Do you see the we? We, frankly, are a disgrace. It's always a shame when a, when a project is begun and then it is abandoned for a long period. The, the, the unfinished restoration of Jerusalem is a malaise, folks. It just every day is sapping creative energy from the development of the city. Nehemiah understands this. And by the way, he knows the scriptural reason. He knows what Solomon said. Um, Proverbs thir- read, read it with me. Proverbs 13, verse 12, altogether. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Those of you who serve in land development or in city government, you you can testify to this. When there's a project that's only partially done and then it's left to rot for years, it it stifles creativity and, and it promotes crime. But, and this is the strange part, but after a while... We, we all get inured to urban decay, and we don't actually even see it anymore, at least not clearly. That, that, that burned out and only partially rebuilt store next door, it, it is still depressing business, but we just subconsciously accept it as something that's just always going to be there. Nehemiah is honest about this. He does not put up with that. He's honest, and he frames the problem very clearly. He says, you see the trouble. This is not hard to figure out. This isn't rocket science. Now, let's get to work and fulfill some hopes. My little brother is very good at this. My brother assesses very well, and then he is incredibly blunt in his communication. And that honest framing allows everybody in his organization to see the obvious. It is a major reason why his company is so successful. Such is the exact opposite of a consultant that I hired one time. We hired a consultant one time who seemed to be in love with fuzzy catchphrases that only added confusion to every situation and never solved any problem. Every time, every time I would ask this guy for a specific description of what he saw that wasn't ideal in our organization, this consultant would reply, well, we'll need to drill down on that. Thankfully, Pastor Andy fired him before I started drilling down on the guy's head. (laughs) 
Nehemiah doesn't do that. He frames the problem very clearly. He also motivates the leaders. The reason they were willing to follow Nehemiah was because they rightly understood that he was following God and doing God's will. Nehemiah let them see him. He let them see his experience and the ways God had already been moving. You know this, when, when someone is clearly dedicated to following the Lord, you, you want to root for them. People want to people get behind them and follow them. Th- think of it like this. Think of it like this. you got two different 25-year-olds. They come into your living room asking for money from you to change the world. Okay? They're going to change the world. They need, they need your funds to help. One of these people who comes in has, has really big ideas but, but absolutely no experience and no practical stories of how God's already working. They haven't seen anything come together. They have no reason, no idea, but they got a big idea. The other one comes in and can clearly show you from Scripture why the idea is good, and they, and they use reason. They can reason with you and show why the ideas are sound, and they can explain to you ways in which God is already working things. They've already seen how it's coming together. Now tell me, which of those do you support, the one on the left or the one on the right? One of the right, of course you do. You're motivated to root for the one who encourages you with a biblical vision that's playing out. Now, of course, the people still have to respond to that motivation. Look at verse 18. This is one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. Just this mutual encouragement of verse 18. The people responded to Nehemiah's encouragement. Look what they did. They became encouragers themselves. And I have to tell you, this is why I am so blessed to get to spur on this marvelous community. You guys... You are always ready to be encouraged and be encouragers in the good work. Always. I received the most amazing, encouraging notes from you. Let me just show you. Just this last week, a couple days ago, I received this note. Pastor Wayne, you're such an encouragement weekly in your teaching through the relationships you have with so many in the church body. I can't begin to imagine the magnitude of all that goes into your work, but I am thankful for all that you do and thankful for you. Your leadership and your excitement for the Lord is inspiring and contagious, close quote. Now that actually says a whole lot more about the writer of the note than it does about me. But our team, folks, our team gets notes like this all the time. And I can't tell you how much fun we have. It is fun to motivate the leaders like that. It's, it's Nehemiah 2.18. The Jews follow Nehemiah because he motivates them with the biblical vision, and then they become motivators themselves. And that mutual encouragement is really important because it strengthens them for the next trait. The next trait is Nehemiah is unfazed by the opposition. Being a great visionary accomplishes nothing if you can't follow through. But it's never easy to follow through. There is always opposition. And that's why strength and courage are necessary. And by the way, Nehemiah's opposition means business. Here's how I'd like you to visualize it. Visualize all the power and intrigue in that licentious best-selling series Game of Thrones. Which, don't tell me you're watching. Um... So it picture all the nastiness and all the incredible, ugly machinations of Game of Thrones. Multiply that by about a factor of three. I'm serious. And that's Nehemiah. That's what he's up against. Uh, Joyce Baldwin really has a perfect summary. Look what Dr. Baldwin wrote. They, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem, they're answerable to officials in Samaria who were out of sympathy with them, taxed them beyond their income, and made exorbitant personal demands upon them. Under continual threat of being accused to the central government, that means back to Persia, to Ekbatana and Susa, the seat of the empire, as happened during the reign of Ahasuerus, and having no means of self-defense, the Jews must have keenly felt their helplessness. Once hopes for the future faded, morale became low, and religious and moral laxity prevailed, close quote. Now, these oppressors are really intriguing. Uh, later, I don't have time to go there today, but later we meet their families. And when we learn their children's names, this is fascinating. When we learn their children's names, we figure out that these people, 
at least ostensibly, think of themselves as followers of Yahweh. There's no other reason for them to give their children Hebrew names, which they did. That doesn't mean they trust in God. No, it's, it's much weirder than that. They consider themselves in some way part of the community, but they want to keep worshiping other gods, and they want to keep Jerusalem very weak. Um, Mervyn Brenneman says it really nicely, his book on Nehemiah. He says, such a mixture of worship of Yahweh along with adherence to other gods and pagan customs really was paganism. Nehemiah would not accept their brand of syncretistic Yahwism, but testified that God would prosper the Jews who served him alone. Folks, I think the text highlights this because the most painful opposition comes from those who are almost but not really part of God's redeemed community. They really can hurt. For example, I remember playing football one time against a, a team that had my cousin on it. And I liked my cousin. We weren't particularly close, but I liked him. He wasn't a brother, but, but we, were, we were still you know, related. And I'll never forget the shock of when I broke through the line one time, had one of my best runs of the night, I broke through the line, hurtled over a guy, and then my cousin comes flying up from his safety position and laid me flat out. I mean, just put me on my back, <gasps> and it hurt. That's what's going on in verses 19 and 20. These aren't brother Jews. They have no portion in Judah, and yet they are close enough to make life really painful. They can really lay things out, and they're lying. Look, these are minor government officials. These guys know that Nehemiah is legit. They know he was sent by Artaxerxes. So why are they mocking? Why are they dis dis despising? Apparently, by the way, they're doing this out loud in front of the people. Why do that? Because it's the most defeating thing they can do. It's not that they disagree on how to do what is best for the country. They don't want what is best for the country. Another great sum from Dr. Brenneman. I like this one so much I put it in your notes. When the enemies of God's work can find no legitimate basis for opposition, they may use ridicule, questioning the significance of our labors. This sometimes does more harm than even questioning one's credentials or good intentions, which Nehemiah's enemies also did because it attacks the very impetus for action. It lays you out. Despite all this opposition, Nehemiah acted on his plan. He does not follow the literal road to hell, which is paid with good intentions and unfulfilled plans. He followed through despite opposition. We must do the same. Vision without follow-through is just more deferred hope that makes hearts sick. And Nehemiah is able to keep his footing because Nehemiah sees God work through his word. I want you to turn to the last section of the book that talks about Nehemiah's great vision. Um, it's in chapter 8. Uh, go to chapter 8, actually the very last sentence of chapter 7. Kind of weird delineation of chapters here. Go to chapter 7, verse 73, the last part <clears throat> where Nehemiah sees God work through his word. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns... All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. <clears throat> Mattiah, Shema, Aneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. I love that name. It sounds like what an eye doctor would use. Maasiah. Maasiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Pideah, Mishael, Malchijah, 
Hashem, uh, Hashbadanan, how's that for a mouthful, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, so be it, so be it. Amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich. Drink what is sweet and send portions to those who have nothing prepared since today is is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. And the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still since today is holy. Do not grieve. Then, Then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration because they understood the words that were explained to them. Now the verse delineation here is nuts. So we start with a new thought at the end of verse uh, 73. But I need to explain the context for you about chapter 7. Chapter 7 is all about establishing proper land rights for all those who have heritage as Jews. It's really similar to what happened in Germany after that wall fell down, which was not taken down by Mr. Gorbachev, uh, after that wall fell down and, and Germany reunified. There was a German organization called the Treuenhand. Uh, it was a, a, a German government agency, and their job was to try and find out who had originally owned the land before it had been taken away from people and try and put people back on their ancestral property. That's, that's exactly what's happening here. Um, so, so Nehemiah gives people their rightful property in chapter 7. After they're given their ancestral property, there's this movement of God's Spirit that breaks out across the country. There are three significant aspects to this movement. This revival is voluntary, it is Scripture-based, and it is full of joy. Let's look at the, first at the biblical basis. They come together in the seventh month. Okay, the seventh month in, in the Hebrew calendar is, is a month of three great celebrations. The first of the month is the Festival of Trumpets. Then a little bit later comes the most important high holy day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And then finally after that is the Feast of Tabernacles, the the wonderful Festival of Tabernacles week-long celebration. The people come together here during trumpets. It's on the first day of the month. And this is really interesting. Here's why. You see, Moses commanded that the law be read during tabernacles. The whole law had to be read during tabernacles, not during trumpets. But the people don't want to wait. They don't want to wait a few weeks. They want to hear the Bible now. Significantly, this section shows us four tasks that they they undertake. And these are the same four tasks for anybody who is approaching the Bible. The four things you've got to do if you want to really understand the Bible is you've got to observe it, you've got to understand, you have to correlate it, and you have to apply it. We're going to see them do each of these. They observe. Look at the repeated term, understand, in your text. It's the Hebrew word bean. Easiest word you will ever learn. Count of three, you get to say bean. One, two, three. Very good. Uh, It's a word that appears in every Semitic language. It's in Akkadian, it's in Ugaritic. But here's the deal. In all the other Semitic languages, bean appears very rarely. It's used in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, a lot. It's a very common word. And it's a serious word. It means to discern. 
It's, it's a word for looking deeply into something. The idea is, is really shown, I think, in verse 3. <clears throat> the clause in verse 3 in Hebrew is literally, and the ears of the people to the book. That, that's what it says, the ears of the people to the book. That's observation. That's looking, listening attentively to the Word of God. Then in verse 7, we learn about how they understand. Do you see those guys listed in verse 7? They had my job. Their role was to take the Scripture and make sure that people captured the meaning in context. Verse 12 shows us the next very important but oft-neglected step, which is correlation. Critically important prepositional phrase, to them. They understood that these words were spoken to them. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is all useful for all of His people. They learned it was to them. It wasn't just written to some people a thousand years before them. The situation is different now in Judah, but the Scripture must be understood and correlated to their new times. It does correlate. It does apply to them. Speaking of apply, that's the fourth thing we learn here. They applied the Word of God, and that hurts. It always hurts. It exposes our sin. It pierces deeper than soul and spirit. Folks, if you don't apply the Bible to yourself, not your spouse, not your kids, not anybody else, to yourself, you have not studied the Scripture as God intends. And by the way, nothing's changed in the 2,500 years since Nehemiah was written. This is still exactly how you and I are supposed to learn from Scripture. It's what I'm going to teach in a few months when I teach my, my Bible interpretation course for OBU. I'm going to be teaching observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. It's the number one need for churches and Christians all around the world today. Just recently, I had tea in my office with a, a wonderful fellow. He's an influential uh, leader, oversees dozens of seminaries in Asia. And he told me, he said, Wayne, this is the greatest need that we face. In fact, I, I took notes as he was talking. He said this. He said, here's what, here's what happens for us in Asia. We cannot produce enough pastors who observe the text instead of just spouting surface ideas. And then he said, people don't interpret. They don't interpret according to the grammar and the context and the history and the language. And then he said, correlation is wildly off. He, he especially talked about two kinds. He said, sometimes we've got people who act as if, oh, that scripture no longer applies. That was just for them. That doesn't apply to us now. And then you've got an opposite kind of problem where they, where they will apply the scripture, but without understanding that you've got a difference of covenant and language and time, and they won't correlate it to us. And finally, he said, application is missing. Get this. He said, application is missing, especially among the more educated. Now, I, I listened to that list, and I looked up, and I said, friend, that's not just in Asia. We struggle with those same problems here. Like Judah, we need to revive our grasp of God's Word. All God's people said, amen. Now, let's consider the second aspect of this revival. It is voluntary. Notice how the people are dialed in. You know, sometimes you'll have people try to do revivals through history and they don't make them voluntary. They violate the whole principle. It's voluntary. They desire to hear Scripture. No one commanded them to gather and listen. The word just seems to have spread and everybody got together because they wanted to hear the truth. The fact that they gathered in this big plaza, um, it's a place that would later be called the Pool of Siloam. How many of you have been to Jerusalem? You've been to the Pool of Siloam. Actually, very good. We're not sure that we really saw the real Pool of Siloam. They're excavating another place now that may be the real one, but it's hard to tell. Uh, there are a couple of good physical reasons why you would have the gathering here. One is that uh, those of you who have been there with me, as I pointed out to you, there are a whole lot of restrooms in this area. That's important. You ever been to a concert? It's kind of important. Uh, so there are a lot of public restrooms in this area. There's also living water. There's flowing water so that people can get plenty of, of fluid and stay going during the day. 
But there may be a spiritual aspect why you gather in a setting like this as well. There was a great song. It's in, it's in Israel's Greatest Hits, which we call the Psalms. Uh, that's what the Psalms are. Um, and the sons of Korah wrote this song, Psalm 22. Do you remember this? is fairly famous. Read, read verse 1 with me of Psalm 22 all together. Verse 1. As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. The Jews in Jerusalem were thirsty. They were longing. They were panting for Scripture. Perfect setting. Now look at verse 5. No one told them to stand. No, he said, they just revered Scripture so highly they voluntarily rose. Same thing with the bowing in verse 6. This is a spontaneous response to Yahweh. Are we open to that kind of revival? I, don't even write me. I know. I know. The charismatic kooks have taken all the fun out of it. I, I understand. I know. Because they go beyond Scripture, because they add to the Bible through their experiences, you're scared to death of anything that smacks of, of responding to Yahweh's Spirit. But folks, just because other people have been nuts doesn't mean we need to be scared of God's Spirit. Just because there is a cliff here at the front of the stage, does that mean that I should cower back there in the drum cage and teach from there just to be safe? Does it? Would that be good, yes or no? No, it's absurd. All right? Best book I ever read on this, best book I ever read on it was Chuck Swindoll's Flying Closer to the Flame. It's an older book now, but it is so good. Voluntary revival is to be embraced, not feared, as long as you don't, you don't burn yourself by violating Scripture, as long as you don't burn yourself by being disorderly. Remember, God says He is a God of order, all right? There have been a few times that we have experienced work of the Lord like what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. I just want to tell you about one. There was one night at the Pine Cove Shores, uh, the high school camp at Pine Cove. The, the club time had finished, and all the high schoolers were, were dismissed. Only nobody left. They all just stayed. And, and one by one, the kids started standing up and just moving in together, moving, moving closer to the stage until they were all packed in, 300 kids all packed in real close together. And then one girl began to sing a praise song, and other people picked it up and they started singing. For the next two hours, the staff, we just stepped back and just praised God and just watched Him work. For, for long periods of time, they would be silent. Then somebody would just say something reflecting on the Scripture. They were really smitten by the Scripture that, that we'd been studying. And then somebody would sing a song and they'd sing and then they would, they would just pray on their own for a while. It was beautiful. And then after, after two hours, kind of all of a sudden, they just realized it was, it was time. It was time to be done and time to go praise God in other ways. And everybody smiled and hugged each other and, and went off to bed. Actually, I think they went to snacks and, and then to bed. <clears throat> Smart kids. That idea of smiles and hugs is really significant. Look at our third point in your notes. The revival is cause for joy. They have joy for a couple of reasons. First, they realize that God's word is for them. We must never lose sight of that joy. God actually has spoken to unworthy goobers like us. It's amazing. They did not take for granted that they had unfettered access to God's word. Now, this is a continual battle for folks in our parts of the world, especially in this church. You, you guys know you can't swing a cat in this church without scratching somebody who is an excellent teacher of God's word. And, and while that is wonderful, we can become really complacent about it, right? We can forget to be joyful about that blessing. Let's not forget. And let's stop swinging cats. Amen? All right. Second, 
They rejoiced because they needed to be strong for all the work God had for them. There's a lot of work ahead. As Nehemiah and Ezra reminded them, the joy of the Lord is one's strength. And I've thought a bit about this, and I'd like to share with you something. I, I think, and you may, you may see other observations. Here's what I've noticed. When human beings feel weak, when they're concerned about big battles, when they're feeling defeated or weak, people tend to gravitate toward one of three false sources of strength. These are our false strongholds. People will gravitate when they feel weak to attention-seeking. Look at me, look at me, mommy, look at me, look at me, right? Feeling weak, feeling left out. Picking a fight or cursing, those come from the same general channel. Picking a fight or cursing. This is why men who are depressed go to bars and pick fights. It gives them a false sense of strength until they, until they get their teeth knocked out. And then the third one is bitterness or nursing a grievance. You can see that on social media every day. Bitterness or nursing a grievance. These are what we do when we feel defeated. Here's what's fascinating. These strategies work. They work for a very short time, but they do work. It is a medical fact. Cursing releases certain hormones that give somebody a temporary capacity to handle pain better. It's a fact. It is proven that complaining, proven, complaining will actually boost a person's self-image for just a moment. But these boosts are very limited. And, of course, you know that these false strongholds have disastrous side effects. <laughs> Not only are they temporary, which is bad enough, they leave a horrible aftertaste. They make things worse than they were before you use these strategies, which is why God forbids every one of these. Instead, God reminds His people the only solution to our weakness, the only wise way to handle our brokenness is to find joy in the Lord joy in the Lord. We can smile when we're convicted by Scripture because we know that that's God at work in us to sanctify us. And in that joy, we find the strength to keep on growing. And frankly, I got to throw this in. This is another area where I am very blessed and I am amazed by the peoples with whom I get to study the Bible. Both here and around the world, many, many Christians I know get excited when Scripture roughs them up. They love it. It is so beautiful and wise. Here, here's how it usually flows. Um, I'll, I'll have a week where, like this week where I'm studying the Scripture and I'm beaten black and blue by it. I mean, God's just beating a snot out of me as I'm looking at this text and realizing how incredibly insignificant and unworthy I am and praising God for His grace and trying to grow. And then I get to get up and teach it, right? And when I teach it, I look and I see people and they're, they're feeling just what I feel. They're, they're squirming in their seat, their heads down, they're taking notes, they're doing, they're hiding behind their coffee. You know what? They're, they're beaten too, right? They're hurting. And I understand that. They're in pain under God's conviction. But invariably, invariably, the next day after those kind of days, I will get the most amazing letters of thanksgiving and joy. People who are really happy. They have wisely turned to God and they found Him to be more than enough. And the joy of His loving conviction gives them strength. You see, the joy of the Lord is in the context of conviction here. Don't take it out of context. When they're convicted, they find joy. And that joy gives them strength. As our missionary Dan Bolin wrote to me once, he said, Wayne, joy is the fuel upon which we run the Christian life. And joy is found in conviction. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters so much, and I ask you to bless us, bless them, bless me, that we might embrace conviction from your Scripture, that we might be open to and excited about the revivals that we get to experience, 
because we trust you. And your joy is our strength. Now, my friends have a lot of battles ahead of them today. Serious, painful things to face. And I beg you to give them strength through your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.